It's the 20th episode of STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros, and our first returning guest. Ever since the first episode of STEM launched, I've wanted to get him back to pick his brain on so many topics, from industry data and research, to current product trends and consumer groups. Dr. Marvin Miller recently celebrated 35 years as Ball Horticultural's market research manager, and he's quick to remind me that he's been studying our industry for much longer than that. And also that being a researcher means he has looked at data going back far beyond those 35 plus years. Bottom line, Marvin has a ton of knowledge and ideas to share. And because his first episode was on the shorter side of STEM as we've progressed through 20 episodes, I decided to turn off the timer and let him go. This one's almost an hour, but it's worth every minute. We start by going through some current industry research and data related to today's consumer and setting participation and consumption records and quickly move to topics ranging from the current indoor plant trend and potential of the cut flower market to millennials as consumers. We also discuss lessons learned from more than 15 trips to Alaska and what politicians can learn from a pod of whales. Seriously, I'm not joking about that one. You'll want to listen all the way to the end of this episode. Dr. Marvin Miller, Unplugged. But first, Connect Four, where we look at four features that make the WebTrack business management system an amazing tool for your greenhouse operation. Thousands of greenhouse professionals use BallSeed's WebTrack business management system to search live inventory from hundreds of suppliers and place orders, and we are so appreciative of every one of those transactions. But for Connect Four this episode, I want to share four WebTrack features you might not be aware of, but ones that could really save you time and increase efficiency. First, not really a feature, but a full-blown mobile version of WebTrack called WebTrack To Go. Available for iPhones and Androids, WebTrack To Go is your portable version of WebTrack. Get plan information, browse live inventory, place orders on the spot, track shipments, upload photos, and check your order status 24-7. Download this free time-saving app and you'll get immediate access to all the same products, suppliers, and many of the features of WebTrack right from your smartphone. I'll put links to download WebTrack To Go in the show notes. The second feature available from WebTrack is a fun one the ability to tag and share favorites. Imagine you're at a summer field trial and you spot a super cool new chartreuse begonia called canary wings that looks amazing in a shade container. Just jump into WebTrack on your phone, search canary wings, and quickly tag it as a favorite. When you're riding home from the trial, share canary wings and your other favorites with your head grower or other team members to show them the innovations you saw and that your greenhouse should order for the next season. Next, How about that age-old question that comes to mind each morning when you walk through the greenhouse doors? Where the heck is that plug shipment? Now you can hop onto WebTrack and track all shipments at the push of a button or tap on your screen. With shipment tracking features on WebTrack and WebTrack To Go, you'll know exactly where your order is and you'll be able to plan and schedule your labor needs. This is a major time saver and efficiency booster. The final chip in our game of Business Management Connect 4 is product information at a glance. It would not be an exaggeration to say that I use the WebTrack catalog product search 10 times every week. Looking for product photos, searching for culture and technical tips, trying to figure out the different input forms of a different product are all made simpler with WebTrack. There are tens of thousands of products in the database and it's as easy to use as your favorite search engine. Access the search from WebTrack on your desktop, the BallSeed.com homepage, or from WebTrack to go. I guarantee it's going to become your go-to for plant information. Now enough about WebTrack, although I could easily share another four useful features. Let's get to the episode. Episode number 20, to be exact. Marvin, it's great to have you back on Ball Seed STEM Podcast. You were our very first guest 20 episodes ago, and it's really amazing how time flies. We're through... Another spring, summer, and fall since we last talked, and I know you've traveled a lot in the past 10 months. You've no doubt talked to hundreds of people, and I know you've also analyzed some fresh data related to our garden consumers. So how are things out there in the world of horticulture? 
Well, Bill, th- thanks. It's good to be back uh, in, in the podcast uh, realm. Um, the the world of horticulture right now, I think, is is very varied. I think most people felt it was a great season, gardening wise, uh, spring and summer, and and into the fall. I heard a lot of mums went scarce uh, this fall, so it, it does appear to be continuing. I think one of the challenges that that I'll have to throw out is it, it depends on where you are. Uh, we've had a, a number in our industry that have been affected by hurricanes uh, in Hawaii, even volcanoes. Um, right now we've got fires going in California and, and these uh, calamities certainly do pose a change, a hiccup, uh, worse than a hiccup probably in many cases, uh, to to a firm that, that, that may feel like it was rolling along on all cylinders and suddenly they have something else they have to address. Um, I, th- I think the one other thing that I continue to hear a lot about is our immigration issue um, and and the issue of just finding enough labor. Um, we, we certainly know a number of greenhouses operating at less than capacity because they cannot find the labor. Uh, what becomes particularly challenging in California, I just got back from California and uh, we we heard that it's one thing not to have labor, and so you don't you don't gear up for it. But in in another case, where you've grown the crop, and then suddenly your labor leaves to go pick strawberries, which is what happens in in California when the strawberries are ripe, um, and and those folks need the labor, they'll even. Uh, send out broadcast messages through the grapevine and offer more than what people are making uh, working in horticulture, uh, floriculture to to go pick strawberries and all of a sudden your labor vanishes overnight and uh, that be- that becomes probably disheartening to have grown the crop and then not be able to harvest. So so there are there are bumps along the way, but I think for the most part the industry felt like it was a good gardening season and and pretty good in cut flowers um, for the most part, um, potted plants if, if there are some and certainly in foliage. Uh, people are really excited. Now that and and you know I hear a lot of the same things when I uh, well both reading reading the trade press and uh, talking to growers and you're right I mean it tends to be all discussions right now are revolving around labor um, ways to become more efficient in the greenhouse tips for finding labor and then obviously the the uh, discussions about the labor shortages and challenges so. You know, I really wanted to, to, to have you on a little bit to pick your brain on some of this new research. And, you know, I think, you know, just from looking at some of the numbers that you're going to see or that you're going to tell us about a little bit of, of growth um, driving some demand in our industry, which actually makes this labor shortage even more of a, a pinch point. If, if more products being sold and more products needed, then, man, I, I got to believe that they're going to hear more about the labor. But first off, can you tell me a little bit about this this data that you're going to be sharing? And, and really, I guess, why why does the data matter to us? Well, I I, I think back to Vic Ball and, and that, you know, this comment that Vic made probably well over 30 years ago. And he used to compare it. Uh, Vic, Vic had been a pilot. Um, and and really was still uh, into his senior year, still flying a plane on occasion, and and he he always would say, you know, if I'm in a plane and I don't know exactly where due north is, it's nice to have a compass. And he viewed data in much the same way. He said, you know, we we may know it's not 100% accurate. And the compass can be off a few degrees too, but the, to get the general gist of of heading due north or in whichever direction the data lead, um, it tells tells people 
you know which crops are are growing in importance, which crops are declining in importance. It talks about prices, which um, you know, as an economist, I have to say, price is the equilibrium point between supply and demand, and and so prices, if they go up or they go down, they they are reflective of both supply and demand, and and in that regard. Um, data become very important. They are our compass uh, in the industry and and very much um, a predictor of success if 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 we react to the data. You know, just to continue to do the same thing blindly, uh, irrespective of what the data suggests, um, is not exactly the right way to fly the plane, uh, if you will. So, so uh, yeah, we, we definitely don't want to fly blind. And right. I think that, you know, you probably have as much or more uh, experience in analyzing our industry's data as, as anyone out there. So I do appreciate that that Vic Ball story. I, do, I don't think I knew, I'd never heard that story. But now that now that we know why we need to pay attention, what does this most current research tell us and where's this research coming from? Okay, the, the most recent data that, that really has caught my attention is coming from what used to be the National Gardening Association. They broke off their, their market research group into a separate entity a few years back, and it's now called GardenResearch.com, but they still talk about the annual National Gardening Association survey. And so that's, that's the source of the data. And, and the data are really... Uh, reflective of what the consumer is doing. So it's it's looking, uh, it's it's interviewing consumers. It's talking to them about about their purchases. Uh, they typically do the the annual survey uh, in January, where they are asking consumers talk about everything you did the year before. So the 2018 National Gardening Association survey uh, captured data from consumer purchases from the entire calendar 2017 and right now that's our most most recent view of what the consumer is doing at least in the gardening uh, realm so in, that's that's the data source um, if I if I look at the aha the exciting points uh, out of this most recent data, uh, we, we've set records. Uh, we, we showed that 77% of households, uh, which is 95 million households across the country, uh, but 77% participated in some lawn and garden activities in the last year, uh, 2017. Um, and and what uh, that that shows is is very varied. So we we say that forty nine percent of households did some lawn care activities, and it it may say that twenty eight percent did vegetable gardening. Um, so everything's in between, um, at least among the more important floriculture categories. There are there are other categories. I think overall there are 16 different kinds of uh, lawn and garden activities that are captured uh, individually in the report and um, it, it is uh, varied. Flower gardening, 34% of households. So that's 34% uh, compared to the 77% that we're doing some kind of lawn and garden activities. And, and watching that go up or down uh, is is part of this directional uh, information that that you get from the data. Uh, certainly, with seventy seven percent being a record, uh, it, it suggests that everything was really heading uh, in the in the right direction uh, for our industry. So that's that's um, the first take home message um, out of the data. Um, the the next thing that that becomes really exciting um, is is what they spent. So the average household spent five hundred and three dollars in lawn and garden activities. And to give you 
a comparison, the, the previous year, 2016, that number was $407. So we nearly went up a quarter um, from 407 to 503 dollars per household. Um, and that that is an exciting growth. Um, now, I, I will tell you, I'll put an asterisk on that, um, which I think if you read between the lines in the report, uh, even even the folks at GardenResearch.com put an asterisk on it. Um, one of the things they did was switch market research firms. Uh, but but they asked the same question and had the same methodology. So they they say it could be a case where it, it's not a true apple to apple comparison, but they feel that it is uh, because the, because the methodology was the same. So I, I'm excited to talk about the growth, and we'll we'll see where where uh, the 2018 data uh, compared to this, but but that is, that is an exciting thing. Um, the other thing that you pull out of the data is the different categories, and, and you have to look at those in comparison. So uh, the average lawn care activities were $194 per household for those households that were involved with lawn care activities. Uh, in the landscaping area, there was $297 per household for those that were involved. So those are the two big categories. Um, if you look at, at the categories that are more important to most of the floriculture firms, flower gardening was $76 per household, um, vegetable gardening $84 per household. Again, these are for those households that are participating in that. Um, container gardening, which is broken as a separate category, um, is $58 per household. So if you're out there talking about containers, you, you know, you have to stop and think how many containers can the consumer household buy at $58 on average in, in that container. And it's, it's not that many, but that's that's the number that came out. Uh, flower gardening, um, the fact that it was 76 and then this container gardening. So maybe maybe those are both flower categories and maybe there's some flower uh, purchases in the landscaping dollars as well. Um, but the other the other one that's uh, probably important to note is indoor house plants. And we're seeing indoor house plants was up a fair amount in perspective, and that's $43 per household. So uh, that's that's kind of a, uh, an interesting growth uh, that, that's taken place there. Uh, so that's, that's probably the most exciting uh, information coming out of, of this survey. Um, there, there is some uh, information on where people are buying. Uh, home centers, 38 million households did some buying at home centers, 31 million did some buying at discount mass merchandisers, 32 million did some buying at IGCs. So uh, those are, are, are other things that are, that are worth noting um, out of the 91 million households that, that did purchase. So we had 95 million that were somehow involved in lawn and garden activities, 91 million of those actually made some purchases. Well, that data sounds exciting, and I think that it sounds extremely positive. I love that, you know, you know, assuming that asterisk is uh, can be raised next year, that 407 to $503 per household is huge. Um, I know that when I look at some of the garden center data, they have captured uh, increases in in the in that sales number. Um, still struggling a little bit with uh, transaction counts, uh, but at least we're seeing the dollars go up. And then uh, setting setting records is always uh, what you want to hear when you look at uh, at the data, right? Right. And 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 I mean the records are exciting. The the fact that that we are at an all time high is important, but the fact that we also set a record on the growth. Uh, from year to year with the asterisk um, is important. And it, it certainly tells you um, which way the compass is pointing, but it also tells you, it also tells you uh, what to watch for. 
and to see if your own sales are reflective of that national trend. And if so, pat yourself on the back. If not, ask why. No, I think that that's a, that's very good advice. Um, and you've put this into a little bit of historical perspective. Um, maybe you can share a little bit more about how this fits in historically. And then I guess my question is, how closely do some of these trends we've seen, you know, an uptick in vegetable gardening, uptick in indoor house plants, um, how closely do those trends um, and then the behavior following that, how close does that happen? How quickly should we be looking for that to make an impact, I guess, in the way that we do business day to day? Well, I, I think it depends on where you are. And, and that's that's one of the the key things. Um, the These trends are based on a national survey. And that, that national survey does not always hit every part of the country at the same time at the same rate. Uh, what we see most of the time is that that East Coast and West Coast uh, certainly will capture the trend uh, sooner than than other parts of the country. Um, we we know that that most um, I, th I think we're in the northeast quadrant of the country geographically. We have something like uh, sixty percent of. Uh, of the consumer base. Uh, so, you know, that, that may be off a little bit on that stat, but that's traditionally what we think of. So anything from Washington, D.C., north, uh, west to the Mississippi, uh, that quadrant uh, certainly uh, is where we see a lot of the trends in terms of dollars happening. And and as far as trends and what is in vogue, uh, we may see that as much on the West Coast um, and, and places like New York City um, certainly are reflective first. And then, and then the rest of the country usually catches up. Uh, and I, I say it that way because there are pockets that that don't catch up. There are pockets of the country where where the rest of the country may be on to the next trend before uh, they've never seen the last trend. And 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 that's probably as much a reflection of socioeconomic um areas uh, of prosperity versus not so prosperous uh, parts of the country. And, and, and that's where we see trends happen as well. Okay. Well, and you know, I, I think that when I look at, at trends and maybe, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have the, the same perspective long-term, but I feel like the world is getting smaller and social media is helping spread those trends a little bit more quickly. And so maybe, you know, just because the trend hasn't necessarily, you know, you don't, you haven't seen the trend expanding at your garden center, you know, outside of those geographical areas. I do believe that a lot of your customers or potential customers are seeing those trends in action online and probably would respond favorably if you started dabbling in those trends at your store. A absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and we see that, um, the, the adoption rate, if, if I can use that term, is is happening a lot faster than than in decades past. And, and I think it's not just uh, social media per se, but it's which social medias. Uh, with, with Pinterest and, and Instagram now that are very visual, uh, YouTube, which is excellent for how-to, uh, videos, uh, I, I think I think we see that kind of adoption happening. Certainly, as it reflect, reflects uh, on horticulture or floriculture, uh, I, I certainly think that that's happening much much faster than it used to, and and we do see that. Okay. See so that. and and you know I think that that this is going to be a really good segue into the next part of this podcast, which. We're going to change it up a little bit from the way I normally do things with STEM. Um, now that we've had a little bit of time to think about the numbers and what the data says, I want to move into a little bit of open dialogue about a few topics that you and I have chatted about many times and that I know we both feel are interesting and worth discussing. Um, again, it's a little bit of a different format, but hey, it's our 20th episode. And I'm talking to Marvin, who has this range of knowledge and interests. So 
I think it's okay to change it up a little bit. And I wanted to congratulate you for 35 years as Ball's market research manager. That is a huge, uh, I mean, that, that that's phenomenal. And it's it's such a, a great honor to be talking to you after, and with that sort of 35-year perspective that I know, you know, there's a lot of industry members that have been around uh, for 35 years, and you certainly know a lot of them. Um, but, uh, you know, 35 years at Ball as market research manager is a, is a huge uh, a huge thing. So, congratulations for well, thank, thank you. But I'll, I'll I'll punctuate that with one comment. You know, in in the area of market research, we look at history a lot as well as <laughs> as what's going forward. So, so probably my thirty five years as market research manager uh, captures a much longer period of knowing what's going on in the industry. Um, certainly, I was involved even before Ball uh, with the industry and studying the industry. So, so uh, it, it uh, does capture a lot of background of what what's been happening. So. And, and a good part of history is looking at the future as well. So that's kind of what I want to do now. And I, I have four topics that, that I'm going to throw out to you. I'm going to start with foliage. And we've talked a little bit about foliage and houseplants, but I guess I'm interested in your perspective, sort of a then versus now, because I know this was a hot category, you know, 30, 30, 40 years ago. It's a category right now that we're seeing on the upswing from sales data and uh, anecdotal reports. So I'm going to let you go ahead and take it away. Where do we start when it comes to the foliage and indoor market that everybody seems to be talking about these days? Okay, um, good good question. Uh, certainly, I have to say a lot of what's happening today is based on millennials, uh, and and that's that's probably a little different than than the historical period of the 70s uh, into the early 80s. Uh, Millennials uh, are, and 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 they actually show up in the data as, as a big uh, demographic that that is is fueling a lot of our growth as as an industry right now in, in the in the um, National Gardening Association survey. Uh, what what we're seeing is that millennials are now uh, the second most important group in in terms of both participation and purchasing and a lot of their purchasing is is related to this this whole foliage area they they certainly got involved first with with succulents and it's not even succulents and cacti as much as it is succulents cacti are helping uh, but 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 they're really uh, intrigued with that and and a lot of what we see is the the succulent sales are related to the container and I can't necessarily say the pot that that the succulent is in because uh, there there are companies out there that are putting tillandsias on driftwood or other kinds of containers there's a company that that's really making its own containers containers uh, for that and so it's as as novel a container holding this plant this succulent plant as anything long story made short is they're realizing success they're realizing that they can grow this and it doesn't die and and that is fueling a lot of uh, confidence uh, which which they need and and I say they need that because this this group of millennials in in many many cases did not grow up with gardening did not grow up with with house plants because their parents are are the lowest consuming demographic in the survey and and so in in many cases it's it's experimentation on their own and and they are fueling foliage growth today um, and and it's gone beyond succulents into other kinds of foliage plants um, if I if I go back 30 or 40 years and, and talk about foliage then as much as what fueled foliage back then was interior scaping 
we we were new uh, at, at retail in this this concept called a mall, and in many cases they were regional malls. They were built at the newly completed interstate exchanges, uh, inter, inter, interchanges, excuse me, and and uh, so we we see these malls go up and to acclimate the consumer as much as anything to shopping indoors. Uh, different from the storefronts of the downtown main streets in many communities, um, we, we put a lot of foliage plants in the malls. And they were in ground beds, and, and these palm trees and ficus trees grew up from the ground floor right up through the hollow core of, of the mall. That's, that's the design uh, concept is that we did have a hollow core, um, and, and the stores were along the perimeter of this hollow core, even on the second floor. And, and so the palm trees and ficus grew up, and that, that was a lot of, of what fueled foliage growth uh, back in the in the 1980s and and the consumer also got involved uh, it was not just uh, commercial but it was very much uh, involved with consumer but they were inspired by what they were seeing at malls today I think foliage is is being inspired by social media as much as anything and and what we see today with foliage is that it's it's not an A to Z necessarily, uh, although a good foliage department might carry everything from A to Z. But what 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 is happening again, maybe because of social media, is there are certain hot plants, and you can actually Google hot foliage plants and and see what comes up. Uh, and, and you'll see things like pothos and sansevieria, fiddle leaf figs, uh, but the but the the new hot topic, the new hot foliage plant is Monstera deliciosa, which we might commonly think of as split leaf philodendron, and and so we we are seeing um, that that motif of the monstera leaf. Uh, picked up in jewelry, in clothing, and and all other kinds of ways, so that it's almost a fashion item um, that that I don't think we necessarily saw a lot of foliage migrate into fashion 40 years ago, uh, but today. Uh, the fact that it is migrating into fashion might suggest it is as much a um, lifestyle issue as anything. And I think if 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 you want to really uh, get into what what this trend is about, Google Jungalo, uh, just the way it sounds, Jungalo, and 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 this is the concept of of uh, really filling the living space with green plants to create a habitat, if you will, not just for the plants, but for the person living there or the people living there. And in many cases, it is a, a single person um, that is doing doing it, at least the articles that have been written under Jungalo, the, if you Googled Jungalo, would, would talk about this bachelor or, or that uh, single person who who is um, in many cases buying foliage plants because they are in inner city uh, environments, urban environments, and and they don't have kids, they don't have family, and so a lot of that is is a single person, but it's not limited to single people by any means. Uh, but but they're looking for the plant that has character. Uh, part of this foliage plant collection that they're building is something that that is unique and they're looking for the plant material that is not uh, identical to what their neighbors have. They want their fiddle leaf fig that's got a little more character than than the run of the mill one. And, and so a lot of it is that special plant in, in their eyes that that is creating 
uh, allowing them to create a bond with their plant. Um, it so sounds funny, but if you read if you read the articles, it it's a very different kind of uh, relationship than probably people had with foliage plants 40 years ago. You know, you touched on four things there, the character of the plant, the style, the lifestyle, um, decorating a living space. It just strikes me that this is this is an artistic sort of thing that, that folks are using these plants for. And when you, you, know, you started talking about succulents and the containers that that they come in, which is also very artistic, I just I keep drawing these sort of these ties between them of an artistic expression and and then when you talk about the Pinterest and the Instagram, which is all about kind of being an artist visually and the fact that we can all do it with certain filters and, you know, I can take a picture and, you know, a certain way I, I take the picture and how I run it through an Instagram filter, it really does look, I mean, I'm a, not a good photographer at all. I know you are, but I am a terrible photographer, but I can make it look very artistic. Um, you know, certainly taking pictures of succulents and, you know, some of these unique plants uh, really feeds that artistic uh, quality, in, in my opinion. And and I think that's a big part of it. I, I really do. It, it, it is self-expression as much as anything. And, and that's what art is. It's true. And thinking, I mean, kind of going to my next topic, which I think is also a lot about self-expression. I want to talk... And you touched on it earlier. Um, I know that, you know, you, you do a lot of travel in California. You're involved, you know, heavily in, in the Society of American Florists, but is cut flowers. So I know that there's, a, um, I guess, a movement or a organization doing something called Greenhouse to Table that you've been involved in. So what are you seeing out there when, when you travel and talk to growers uh, when it comes to, to cut flowers? Okay, uh, good, good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when when I look at uh, and and the field to table uh, thing is really a California cut flower commission and and they're they're extending that to say American grown so this is part of their American grown uh, movement and we we are one of the sponsors of, of that program um, that has just finished up its fourth year already um, and and one of the things that that I think the movement is about is letting people know that this is an option. Uh, if, if I look back historically at some of our industry surveys of consumers in the past, uh, back in the days when we, when we had floorboard um, and uh, more recently uh, other promotion program attempts um, that, uh, that I'll say, uh, we, we had um, promo floor being an important one um, with Buzz the Bee. Uh, but, but we had in, in the research that was done prior to those initiatives getting started, there was, there was a recognition that our industry was not necessarily top of mind with the consumer. And there was a, a big question whether the consumer would even think of us. Um, now, if I go back in the days of floorboard, we, we were certainly back, back in um, 82, 83 when that discussion was, was happening. Uh, we, we were still being driven for the most part by fl flower shops. And those flower shops were the retailer of choice because in many cases they were the only retailer that, that carried our product. We did not really get into supermarkets uh, carrying our products on a regular basis until the late 70s, early 80s. So in that time frame, the the retailer record was still the flower shop with with these up and coming supermarket displays uh, for first appearing. But in in that environment is when we recognize that we were not top of mind with the consumer. So I think a lot of the uh, field-to-table uh, focus of the American Grown Program um, is really to try and, and make uh, a little bit more of a connection with the consumer as to how much more interesting the dinner table might be if 
there were flowers on it. How much more interesting life might be if flowers were part of of your daily life. And I I think that that it, it's a little bit subtle. Nobody ever comes out at those dinners and says that, but I think that's ultimately what's behind the program uh, to, to try and get that recognition that we can make dinner special by adding flowers to to the table and and certainly when when it's been covered by the washington post the new york times the wall street journal that's the messaging that goes to those uh publications that that's why this this program is important I think that we should not be subtle about it and should be saying how much more interesting life would be with flowers in the daily mix because, I mean, not just being given as gifts, but having as decorations around the house. I just, I don't know. I guess that that, that would be my own tangent would be that flowers make everything more beautiful. Giving No one has ever frowned when you give them a bouquet of flowers or you bring flowers to someone's house. Like, I feel like, you know, the more that we can, as an industry, promote the value of flowers in the daily life, you know, it could be garden plants, it could be cut flowers, it could be succulents on your dining room table as well. But I, I think that um, I feel like initiatives like you've just talked about um, with that American grown uh, uh, group is, is extremely critical. So how, how has the response been? The, the response has been very good. I mean, the dinners sell out. And and as they've moved around the country, because this is a nationwide kind of effort, uh, as they've moved around the country, there there are different looks from dinner to dinner. Uh, we we had a dinner this last uh, f- fall in Florida that was just focused on greens. Uh, it was in it was at, at Florida Fern Trust, which is is the home of uh, a lot of the foliage. Uh, cut foliage that's grown in the United States, and um, it it is uh, it, it was really focused on that. They had a dinner up in Alaska, and and there it was on a peony farm. And guess what the focus was <laughs> peonies. And and so uh, what what made it a little unique is most of the history of peonies in in our industry's commerce is about uh, May, give or take a few weeks. Um, in Illinois, as an example, we, we see peonies blooming in the garden around Memorial Day. And, and that was the season. But, but now we, we've extended that season because we have Alaska that brings in peonies in July and August. And so we, we can really extend that season and make them a little more uh, available, a little more prominent. And, 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 and that was the focus of that dinner that was held up in Seward, Alaska. So, so I think uh, the dinners have, have highlighted the opportunity to have flowers as part of the dinner table, but they've also highlighted different flowers and different design techniques as it's moved around the country from place to place with a different designer uh, involved uh, at, at each of the dinners. So it, it, it's been a, probably a, a win-win in many ways. I love that they're they're including um, other products like the cut greens and everything like that. I think that that, that really adds to this kind of a diverse group of products. And, you know, there was a past episode of STEM that we talked to Jamie Kitts from Cicada, and she was also um, pretty excited about the opportunities with cut flowers. Um, I will link to that in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's safe to say that that, that cut flowers could be of, of major interest to um, sort of our next generations of consumers and that, uh, you know, that, that's certainly a product line that we should, we should keep an eye on moving yeah. forward. Yeah. Let me add one, just one thought. If you think about millennials today, we have a generation that has never not known flowers to be available in the supermarket. And if you go to older generations, uh, that was a new concept in the late 70s and, and early 80s. But, but t- today we've got a generation that has seen cut flowers especially in the supermarket since, since they've 
you know, recognize what, what goes on in the world. Uh, so it, it's always been there. And, and I think that's, that's part of what we need. Uh, it, it is making them a little more of an everyday kind of thing. And, and that helps the industry um, certainly get away from some of our peaks and valleys, although we still have many peaks and, and not enough peaks, but we still have peaks and valleys. Uh, but but we, we do see the opportunity certainly to make them more part of everyday life. No, very, very, very true. And you actually touched on uh, millennials as a market, and that's the next uh, topic I want to discuss. Um, and I know that we could probably do a whole episode, um, so maybe we can uh, we can keep this to just a, a few thoughts. But when we talk about a millennial consumer demographic, and you know, we know from the data that it's a huge generation, you know, larger than the baby boomers I've seen. Just a gigantic uh, generation. Um, they're, you know, certainly established as consumers already. Um, but you know, I also think that there's something to be said for life stage and sort of as a person ages, they move through different stages as a consumer as well. You know, I, I don't ever expect an 18-year-old to purchase as many plants as a 38-year-old. Um, mostly because they probably haven't bought a house and they just don't have a lot of place to put them. But that being said, you know, millennials are certainly uh, solidly in their 30s now and having kids and buying homes and um, really hitting those peak spending years. There's also the, the, the single folks living in urban areas that you referenced with the jungalows that are consuming a lot of products. Um, so I guess I'm going to throw it out there. Millennials, are they, are they really different than past generations? Um, I'll leave it wide open, kind of see where you want to go with that. I know that you have some thoughts on their, uh, their, their gardening and, and, and habits when it comes to horticulture. Yeah. Um, well, at, uh, I'll start with saying at the risk of not hoping to offend anybody, but, but, but no matter their age. Um, but, but I, I will say that millennials in some ways are not that different and in other ways are very different. Uh, first of all, they think they're different. And, and uh, since they think they are, we know that perception is truth, whether, whether it's real truth or not. And, and so, so we, we have to treat them a little differently. So that, that's, that's the, the first point. The second point I would say is unlike the boomer generation, uh, millennials are coming into our industry uh, without having learned anything about horticulture from parents or grandparents in many cases. And, and if you look at the, the data, you will see we've got the boomers as our number one demographic and then the millennials as our number two demographic as far as participation and consumption. And, and the, the, the two demographic breakouts between these two groups are much, much lower than even the millennials. Uh, so, so they, in many cases, did not have a parent who was gardening or a grandparent who was gardening. So a lot of what they're doing, they are doing on their own, uh, their own discovery, so to speak. And, and in, in that regard, um, I think, at least, at least when we've talked to them, uh, in focus groups or one-on-one -on -one conversations, they don't garden the same way as the boomers or previous generations in general. Uh, it, in, in many cases, uh, the terminology that, that I will talk about is, is that older generations were very much about utilitarian gardening. They, they were out there and it was time to plant the marigolds along the sidewalk or the driveway, around the mailbox, uh, at the property line or, or whatever. And, and, and that's where the gardening happened. It, it, it always served a purpose um, to, to greet people at the front door uh, or at the front gate or along the sidewalk. Uh, where, where millennials come into our industry, a lot of their initial experience has been with vegetable gardening. Uh, 
And if it's not vegetables, it's it's the broader category of edibles. It might include herbs. It might include um, fruit, trees, or berries. Uh, but 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 their focus was was initially on on vegetables or edibles in general. And and some of that was in their parents' backyard, maybe when they were really young, or when they've returned to live with their parents after college, if 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 they went way to college. Uh, some of that could be a rental plot. In, in a lot of communities, they have rental plots, you know, for gardening. And, and so this was their first um, experience. And the reason that that is a key point is, is edibles are anticipatory. You plant the plant today in the hope that you're going to harvest the tomatoes down the road, you know, 60 days later. And in in that regard, um, it, it is not instantaneous, and it it's part of that discovery. Oh, today it's in bloom. Oh, there's a little tomato at the end of where the bloom was. Oh, this thing's getting bigger, and all of a sudden, oh, it's it's starting to ripen, and and then they all of a sudden get to harvest. And, and that's, that's very experiential. So if, if I would talk about utilitarian gardening for the previous generations, what, what I would characterize millennial gardening as is very much more experiential. They, they are truly fascinated with what plants do, with what nature does, and, and their role in that and sometimes the role is all i did was plant it and water it uh but sometimes they they really get into it and and they're out there staking it and they're watching it and they're photographing it and they're instagramming it and and uh, you know you see the whole evolution of what that tomato plant can do and does do uh and and so it it is uh, a very different perspective. Just as we talked about foliage being almost an artistic side, um, that's very experiential as well. And so we're, we're seeing this in the garden now as well. And, and it's, it, to me, it, it's quite exciting. And in that re regard, I would say it's very different than other kind of gardening. And we've talked about how to really encourage this in some ways are um, certainly having workshops, whether that's in, in store or on video. I mean, so many people learn on YouTube these days. It's really become quite a search engine uh, when it comes to education and learning. And then one of the things that you and I have talked about, you know, certainly when we talk to garden center folks is you got to be really patient and prepared to answer their questions because they're coming in without this high baseline of knowledge, but also with a very inquisitive nature. So um, being patient, answering those questions, creating an environment in the store um, that allows for that that learning, I think is is very important. Um, don't you agree? A absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I think that's, you know, one of the keys to retailing today and and certainly it, it is an area where an independent retailer can shine in comparison with with the mass marketer. Uh, it it is an opportunity to have those kinds of workshops, and and to have uh, events. They they don't all have to be educational in in the typical classroom kind of way. Uh, they they can be as experiential as the gardening. Let let's let's learn how to make. Uh, a planter. Let's let's learn. Um, it, you know, when when I was much younger, I remember leading wreath making workshops uh, at, at holiday times. And and guess what? Not all wreaths have to be associated with Christmas. Uh, we we can certainly talk about spring wreaths and and fall wreaths. You may not get the attendance, but but that you would at, at Christmas time. But it, it, all of those hands-on opportunities are certainly ways to differentiate an independent retailer that that I don't think the mass marketers would ever be able to adopt or adapt. 
and and I think you'll have a, a ready audience. Um, I, I've talked to um, some of the botanic garden operations around the country where where they have good educational programs. We 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 have one of those in the Chicago Botanic Garden here, and and their registrations uh, at workshops um, just going through the roof relative to. Uh, in the past, and, and we've seen the same thing in in other locales, Iowa and, and Nebraska as well. You know, so it's not just big city uh, where where the registrations are really uh, higher than they've ever been. And I think I think a garden center can do that too. Absolutely, and you know, I've 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 read recently about one of the fastest growing retail franchises are these paint painting parties, pottery painting parties, where you know groups of of um, I say men and women are going out and having having a couple glasses of wine and painting pottery that you can then, you know, then they fire it and they bring it home. And it, it's just becoming this very big trend. And that gets back to an event that's fun and social. Um, and obviously, social media is a great opportunity to share some of these events and ideas uh, with your retail customers. So, We've got, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I do want to just go back really quickly and reference the first ever episode of STEM where Marvin and I spent a lot of time talking about um, new plant sort of packaging formats and ways to promote multiple units of plants to a new um, type of shopper who might not, you know, who might be looking for a little bit more value in the plants that they're buying. Um, we talked about uh, how growers might shift their production to appeal to today's shopper. And, you know, we titled it Drama in the Garden. And I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. I definitely don't want to rehash it, but I know you've had a year. You've been out talking to, uh, to folks about these ideas. Um, have your visits and discussions resulted in any new thoughts or ideas uh, going back to that first episode? Well, I I think uh, you know there are multiple ways to answer that. I I think uh, I've run into a few more folks that are doing exactly that, uh, putting part of their production back in packs and flats, uh, and and I think uh, that's that's encouraging to me. Uh, it, it does it does suggest that we're on we're we were on spot with that trend uh, that we saw coming. Uh, so I, I was encouraged there. The one thing from my perspective that, and nobody's told me this, I have not, this has not happened as a pushback in a conversation or anything, but in, in my mind, you know, I was aiming at an 1801 that might be in the neighborhood of $30 uh, to as much as $2 a plant. And and in my mind, uh, just since we, we had that conversation uh, at the start of the year, uh, we've got a lot of locales where their minimum wage is going up. And and I'm just wondering if I ought to give up on the suggestion of $30. Nobody's said, no, that can't be done. But I think if minimum wage is going up to $15 an hour or more, um, or, or the hireable wage, which may be more than the minimum wage in many cases, is even higher, uh, it, may, it may take $2 a plant, and, and maybe we ought to be closer to that $2 a plant in, in that size than, than $30 for 18. Um, I personally still think if we can keep it less expensive, even if they're smaller plants, again, the millennial is used to anticipatory gardening. Uh, and, and so it doesn't have to be as big and beautiful as, as a five inch pot, four and a half inch pot. Um, but, but value is, is, is much an important thing, uh, here. And, and, and again, the idea is not to sell one or two, but to sell enough for the, for them to plant a whole flower bed. Um, and I think that's what, what we really have to, uh, be enablers uh, as an industry for, for those that might want to try that. 
I love the fact that uh, that you talked about spotting and, and sharing these trends and seeing it catch on. I think that that's one of uh, my missions, certainly with the podcast, is to try to get out ahead of things and share with uh, you know greenhouse professionals some ideas uh, that that might be starting to catch on that you can certainly be leaders in. So. We need to wrap this up. I know that there's so much more we can talk about, and uh, I definitely didn't want to, to limit this at all. Um, so how can listeners get in touch with you if they do have questions or want to follow up on any of the topics we discussed? Well, in, in theory, you can call me at the office, but the reality is I'm often not here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably the best way is email, uh, and my email address is Miller at ballhort.com. I will tell you that there have been a couple occasions in the last year where I've maxed out while I've been (laughs) on a trip. Uh, So if you do get a bounce back that, that, um, you know, the message was not delivered, wait a few days (laughs) and start over. Uh, But, but usually I'm pretty good about getting back to people. Um, and and in that regard, email may be the best way to to reach me. No, I swear you're probably the person who gets more emails than I do. It's it's unbelievable. I've seen your inbox before. Um, so yes, you can email Marvin. I will put uh, Marvin's email address in the show notes. Um, I do have one more question before we wrap it up, and I'm only going to give you like a minute for this uh, because I know that you can go on and on. So (laughs) anyone who knows you has heard tales of your trips to Alaska and all these amazing things that you've seen uh, while up there. So how many times have you been to Alaska? And can you tell us about one experience in Alaska that you'll never forget and why, but only one? (laughs) Okay, I have limits put on me. Uh, limits are made to be broken or something like that. Uh, (laughs) uh, I've probably been to Alaska, I don't know, 15, 18 times, uh, something like that, all since 2005. That was my first trip. I've only missed one year uh, since then, and I've, I've... I've been a number of times more than once uh, in a year. Um, I, I go up for photography as much as anything, um, although I have learned to snowshoe and 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 uh, mush a dog sled uh, while I it was up there in the winter. I've been up there ten different months of the year, uh, so so it it is, it is um, how I spend a. A number of my vacations uh, time. Uh, pro- probably the last trip, I always should think back to the last trip um, and, and talk about bubble net feeding. Uh, this is something, and, and you can Google that as well, bubble net feeding. Uh, it's something that humpback whales do, and and it, it is a great exercise. They don't do it that often, uh, but it is a great exercise in working together. Um, this last uh, August and September, my most recent trip, the end of August, beginning of September, um, and I had seen bubble net feeding uh, once previously. I saw three times uh, the group uh, of whales uh, surface together, but what happens is uh, they they draw straws, and whoever gets the short straw uh, goes down and starts blowing bubbles uh, through the porthole and swimming in a big circle. And the the bubbles uh, form on a net of sorts, uh, which traps a lot of the mackerel or krill. Uh, that that might be there that the humpback whales would be feeding on, and then all of the other whales in the group surface. At, you know, when somebody says, "Okay, now," they all go up uh, at once with their mouths open and they get their bellies full. Um, and and the last time I saw it was was. Uh, many years ago and and there were like four or five whales involved uh this time there were 11 or more whales each time they surfaced and we were with this this group of whales the pod of whales uh for two and a half hours before the the captain of the boat said we need to move on uh and they were still doing it every few minutes they they would come up 
and then they go back diving again, draw straws again, and 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 take take uh, turns. And all I all I could think about, uh, honestly <laughs> speaking, in, in the course of this, is there could be a lot of lessons for a lot of people, especially our Congress, if <laughs> if if. Uh, they could study this bubble net feeding from humpback whales and really learn about working together because it, it is a phenomenal site. Uh, that that probably is as much a highlight as as I've ever experienced um, this last trip. In the back of my mind, I still remember the time when this grizzly bear cub of just a month or two was literally on the end of my boot and, <laughs> and, and mother was only about six feet away. Uh, and, and I felt safe, believe it or not, but nervous uh, at that point in time. But that's another story. So Wow. And you know what? Next time we talk, I'm going to have to ask you that story. But from okay. whales and bears to foliage and cut flowers, you are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much, Marvin. It's always great talking to you and getting your perspective on the industry through a mix of what I would consider the hard data and your market research and analysis, as well as just the observations based on how much you travel and how many people you talk to in all segments of the industry. I, I really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you very much. All righty. And uh, next time we will be back with some production uh, tips to uh, get you going for the next season. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to STEM. Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros, the 20th episode. I'm Bill Calkins. You can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ballseed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And check out the show notes for links to even more content related to this episode, including links to past episodes we referenced and resources shared and connect for, and more. Let's end this episode with a quote about working together from American author, historian, and minister Edward Everett Hale. Coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success.